right. How are we this morning? All of his promises are yes and amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 7. Seems this morning that uh, we have quite a few people enjoying the opening day of football season. They're not here with us today, so my prayer is that they are all Florida and FSU fans. Glory be to God. All right. Mark chapter 7. Read with me. Beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That, um, just for context, that would be Lebanon today. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And I want you to track with me here because this is... Jesus kind of roasts this woman in a way. Like, there's no other way to describe it or to really explain it. And we're going to dig into the text of it. But it, it seems rather harsh, so I want you to just be prepared for that. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. You're, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon had gone. Um, other than the initial glimpse into Scripture that we see, the, and I want to say this before we even start the message, because this really isn't the thrust of the text, but we do war against spiritual wickedness in high places, principalities, demonic influence, um, influence on culture. Because of the fall, we battle with weapons that, that really that we don't have anything to fight outside of the Spirit of God. Uh, all different kinds of things, right? Uh, lust, greed, envy, all those things for sure. But there's also Satan and a portion of the angels that were in heaven fell when Satan fell. They revolted along with Satan and they fell. So there's this, this cosmic tension, you could say, this eternal wrestle between the enemy and demons and spiritual uh, vitality, spiritual life in Christ Jesus. So there's this constant war. It's not just like, man, I woke up, some days it's not just I woke up feeling bad and things are going on bad in the world. There is spiritual wickedness in high places that would love to lure you away from Christ. There's demonic darkness that would love to influence, in, uh, influence our lives and breathe death over our culture and over our country and quite frankly over the world. So know the day that at the onset of the text, that is a reality. The Bible says that we war, uh, the, the, that we war against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, things not of this world. But I want you to take hope this morning. I just wanted to make this note before we even pray that Christ has overcome those things. That at the cross, Christ established himself as the Prince of Peace and King of Kings with total dominion and sovereignty over all things. So it's not just... Some things, Christ is superior, supreme, infinite over all things. So even the spiritual wickedness and darkness that wars against us, Christ has defeated it. That's why we place our trust and our faith in Christ, so we can be victors along with him. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, 
We're desperate for you today. Lord, I, this is a, a difficult text. It's an interesting text. Why you responded the way you responded. Why you chose to use the words that you used. But Lord, more than that today, I, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive all that you have for us today, God. I believe you're the greatest of all time, that there's none like you, there's never been any like you, there will never be any like you. You're infinitely better than anything that we could experience on this planet. And God, today I pray that you would breathe over us. That you would, through the text, remind us that you are supreme, that you are infinite in authority and power. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray today that we would trust that our hearts would safely trust in you and you alone. In the precious name of Jesus and everybody together said, amen. All right, let's, let's just start at 724 because there's two things that I want you to see in this verse that kind of grab me and are, are quite beautiful. And from there he arose and went away into the region of Tyre and Sidon. I already told you that was modern day Lebanon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Two things I want you to kind of key in on together with me this morning is that he went to Tyre and Sidon. He left the borders and the barriers of his homeland he left his own culture, what would have been normal for him, what would have been comfortable for him. Jesus left the borders. He breathed. He moved beyond the borders of what he would have considered home and took his ministry into a land that was filled with Gentiles. When Jesus moves, what I, what I love about the text is that Jesus shows two things. Number one is that when he moves... The world will always take notice, sometimes before the church catches on. When Jesus is up to something and when Jesus is moving, there's no way that you cannot take notice. You see it in people's lives, don't you? People start kind of acting differently or loving differently or, or, or the fruit of the Spirit starts coming to life in somebody. And what do people say? They're like, man, did they get saved or something? Right there's, there's this evidence, there's this reality that when Jesus is at work in someone's life or in a region, that it cannot be denied. And I love this. Jesus was going away to kind of get some R&R. But wherever Jesus was moving, people took notice. And I wonder this morning, as people stand back from our lives, when they stand back from our church, when they stand back from, our, uh, from who we are in Christ, do they take notice at the work of Christ? I had to ask myself this question when I looked into the text, man. If Jesus takes residence in my heart, he lives here. Jesus Christ is taking up residence. He lives in me and in you if you are a believer. My question is, and what, what stirs me this morning, the question that stirs me is that when someone looks in on my life, is it impossible to hide Jesus? See, when Jesus went into another country just looking for some R&R, everyone around knew something was going on, something other than this world. They knew that Christ the King was there. And for myself, I'm asking the question this morning, when people step away from my life and they look in, do they know that Christ the King is there? Or is he pretty easy to hide? The way that I act, the way that I live, my value system. Can Christ get hidden in those things? Or when people step away from our lives, do they look and say, man, 
you can't hide Christ. You can't hide the fact that he's there doing something. See, when Jesus moves, the world takes notice. It's unmistakable and undeniable when Jesus is up to something. You know that in your own life. When Jesus is moving, when Jesus is doing things, it's unmistakable. You know that sense of grace, that sense of peace, and it's undeniable. You can't run from the reality that Christ Jesus has taken up residence and wants to change your life, wants to shift your values, wants to radically transform you. And I begin to ask myself this question in study. Why, when Jesus moved to a different region, why when he takes up residence in, in someone's heart, when he, he transforms someone's life, when he indwells them with the power of the Holy Spirit, why is it so noticeable? Like when I feed through the text of Scripture, why is Christ, when he comes into his town, when he comes into a city, why is it so noticeable? If you're taking notes, jot this down, because the presence of Jesus is the only thing that cures the fallen world around us. That's why it was noticeable. Because what Jesus has to offer and what Jesus would bring into a community, what Jesus brings into a family, is so radically different than what we're used to in fallenness. See, we're, we're accustomed to seeing sin. We're accustomed to seeing impatience. We're accustomed to seeing pride. We're accustomed to seeing the onslaught of the enemy. We're accustomed to those things. But when you see someone that bubbles over with grace and maturity and peace and they're gospel-centered and Christ-centered and cross-focused, I mean, you, I don't know if you're like me, but I just kind of pause and I'm like, whoa, something's different here, right? Because that's what we crave. See, from the beginning of time, I want you to hear this from Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The presence of Jesus is the only thing that cures the fallen world around us. The psalmist said, in your presence is fullness of joy. So the thing that we desire, the only thing that transforms our lives... The only thing that transforms communities, the only thing that transforms churches is the very presence of Jesus. So this morning what we pursue, what we aim for, what we desire is to be in the presence of Jesus or rather that the presence of Jesus would live in us. I love the way old theologian said it. He said, Christ before me and Christ behind me. Christ above me and Christ below me. Christ to my left and Christ to my right. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me and Christ in the ears of everyone who hears of me. The aim, the theme of the text is that Jesus is moving and when he is moving, the world takes notice. And there's an, an indictment on the church because Oftentimes, especially in our generation, the church is noticed for, for either what they're against or what they haven't done rather than what they're actually walking in. You say, well, TJ, what do you mean by that? Well, there was a time in history, church history specifically, and you go back through history and you see God move and whole nations would rather rally around this idea of the presence of God, the Spirit of God. And it happened in America, right? It happened in the world. We call it the Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening. 
The Welsh Revival, Azusa Street Revival, there are these marks in history where the presence of God consumes the people of God in such a way that they live differently, serve differently, love differently, and they change the world. That's the point of our existence today. That we change the world. The point of our existence is not that we just know more and we cram, right, like for a test and we have all these things in our mind from the Bible. The point of our existence is that we might change the world. And you say, well, TJ, I'm not called to be a foreign missionary. I'm not called to go overseas. Well, that's fine. Endeavor to change your world. What does your world touch this morning? Your friends, your family, your job, endeavor that God would move in you in such a way that the love and light of Christ would shine so bright for you that you would change your world. That's what we were made for. That's what we were made for. And that's what the world is yearning for. The world is desperate for the move of Christ. Even at times when the world, when you share the gospel or you live out your faith, people will question you, they'll ridicule you, they'll, they'll despise you. The Bible says that, but there's always this interest. Have you ever noticed that? If someone lives differently or they begin to live like Christ and love like Christ, it kind of piques the interest of people around them. People kind of, why, why do you do that? I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, why do you pray before your meal? Right, why, why do you... Why do you thank God for the food? Why do you thank God for your family? Like, it piques the interest. It stirs something in the world. Why? Romans 8, 22 through 24 says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons. The world is groaning. The world around us is in constant pain, waiting for the adoption of sons. All of creation groans and all of creation rages, desperate for the peace that only Christ can bring. Desperate for the peace that only Christ can bring. So I want to ask you this this morning before we move from this first little point. Has Jesus entered into your life? And if you claim that he has, have you noticed? And even beyond that, you say, TJ, this is a little convicting this morning, this is a little difficult this morning. I want us to think about this together. Does the world around us notice? Because if we just ask Jesus into our heart for a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it's just about making sure that we don't go to hell, we're not living to our potential in Christ, and we're not living out our calling. We were made to shine. We were made to be like cities set on a hill, a raging bonfire that can't be covered up. We're called to carry the gospel to the world. It's not always comfortable, but it is the call that rests on our lives. Jesus exemplified that as he moved into a community and people he could not stay hidden. So my prayer for my heart this morning, my prayer for our hearts as a whole this morning is God move in our lives in such a way that it can't be hidden. God move in our lives in such a way that it can't be hidden. That we can't keep quiet. That the world around us takes notice that there is something going on. Moving on. 
in, in verse 24 where it says, And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and sit on and entered into a house and didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. The other thing that we grab from this is that Jesus is about missional living. See, in his culture, they, they were the people that he went to visit, the people that he went to spend time with, and this is the only time that it's recorded um, in Scripture that we'll find that Christ Jesus leaves the border of his people group. He goes into another region. He leaves his region. He goes into another region. And in that exemplifying, showing us this idea of cross-cultural, right, like leaving comfort to be on mission. That's what Jesus is doing. He goes into a pagan land with a different culture. Jesus is reminding us that no matter what, we should follow his lead, we should follow his voice, and we should follow him to the ends of the earth. Jesus leaves his region. He leaves what is comfortable. He leaves the people that he knows. He leaves the culture that he knows to take the power of Christ into the world. Now, wonder for us, the call on our life is to leave what is comfortable. That means sometimes loving people who don't look like us or think like us or live like us. You say, DJ, what do you mean? Well, I mean loving people that don't look like us and don't live like us, don't think like us. See, we live in a culture, and you guys know this, where it's no longer okay to just disagree. You actually now have to hate the person you disagree with. This is an incredible thing. I think Millennials kind of birthed it maybe. I don't know, maybe it's just been hidden uh, for years and years and years. But there was a time where you could actually disagree with someone and not hate them. But now it's like a prerequisite. If you, if you have a difference of opinion me, whether it's politically or, or spiritually or, or really anything at all. You know, if, if you like Burger King and I like McDonald's, you, you better watch out because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rage against you with my signs about how McDonald's is better and Burger King is death and Satan, Right? Come on. You turn on the news, that's what we live in. We live in a culture where, man, there was a time where people could sit down and say, I disagree with you, but man, I love you. Man, I disagree with you. I think you're absolutely crazy, but I want to serve you. And we have to, as a church, we have to model for the world that there is a way to love people that you disagree with. Do you hear me this morning? It is not on culture to set the standard. It's not on the school systems this morning. It's not on any, it's not on our community leaders or organizers. It's not on our city or our county. It's not on our state, our country. It is on the church to set the standard of love. It's the weight that sits on the shoulders of the church to. to to set the standard of what it means to, to love people and serve people and care for people and share the gospel. And the world should be able to look in on us and say, there is something different and I need what you have. But most churches, including ours at times, the world could look at us and find a pattern for disagreement that looks a lot like they do. You disagree with me, I'm not, I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. You disagree with me, I don't like you. You disagree with me, I hate you. Man, that is so foolish and juvenile. It's not what we're called to in the gospel. We follow his lead. Jesus poured his life out for a people that wounded and rejected him. 
poured his life out for a people that ridiculed and despised him. Jesus Christ, the righteous, endured the cross, allowed himself to be wounded in such a way that it stirred the Roman soldier to look up and say, surely this is the Son of God. Jesus could have rolled out all the facts and the Torah and all the prophecies and he could have held them up and said, look at what I've done. Look at all the prophecies I've fulfilled. Look, you guys are fools. He just spread his arms out. And he demonstrated the love of God on the cross. And in his, what the world considered at the time, this weak king, this weak man who should have stood up and clung to his rights and told the world what he thought and who he was, instead relinquished them on the cross. And it changed the world. What does it look like this morning for us to love the world around us in such a way that we are willing to carry our cross? We are willing to die. And you'll TJ, nobody's barging it. No, not today. And they may never will in our lifetime. But the reality is, is that it's a lot easier. I would say this, on some level, it might be easier to go out as a martyr than to live as a martyr. Can I say that this morning? Maybe not easier to make that one stand for Christ, to, to, to die physically knowing that you get eternally get eternity with Christ. But what does it look like to live as a martyr our entire lives, dying for Christ daily? Over and over again, giving up our wants, our desires, our dreams, so that the dream of God can live through us and the world can be reached. We follow his lead, we follow his voice, and we follow him to the ends of the earth. This is what's beautiful about that. This is one of my favorite things about that this morning. We don't actually have to save lost people. He said, hold on, TJ, that kind of contradicts what you said. Like, we're here to shine the light of the gospel so that people can be saved that are lost, right? But it's not on you to save someone. That's what Christ died for. Christ died for the salvation of the world. Christ died for the salvation of sinners. So it's not on us to actually save the lost. It's on us to carry Jesus into the darkest of places so that he might save the lost. You hear me this morning? I mean, you don't, you don't have to clean somebody up. You don't have to transform their lives. You don't have to do any of those things. All you're responsible for this morning, I said, when I say all, all you're responsible this morning is carrying the light of the gospel into the darkest of places, being willing to step over into Lebanon, being willing to step over into Tyre or to Sidon. But TJ, those are Gentiles. Those are dogs. Yep. And we are too. Jesus gives his very best to the most unlikely. If you're taking notes, that's the third point this morning. I want you to grab a hold of that. Jesus gives his very best to the most unlikely. Jesus was saying to this woman what was true in her culture. She was considered a dog. The, there's actually tension in the New Testament church because the Jews and the Gentiles always kind of had this 
friction going on. Because the Gentiles are like, man, we've been accepted. And the Jews are like, wait, this is only for us. And Jesus said what he said to her. He said, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, and I love her response, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left for your daughter. I I want you to remember this and sear this phrase in your mind. Jesus gives his very best to the most unlikely people. Jesus gives his very best. Those that society would write off as a dog. Those that all of society would step around, Jesus steps too. And I love this picture that he, he says here, and it ties in. If you have your Bibles, you can go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. See, she was a woman, which in that culture, she was degraded. She was considered nothing of no value. Many countries in the world still fight that ideology, that mentality that women have no value. In her culture, she was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician, which meant that she was like, she was kind of extra, right? Not only was she a Gentile, she was like one of those Gentiles. She knew where she stood in society, but she knew who held the cure. And she wasn't leaving until she had it. I want you to hear this. Jesus gives his very best to the most unlikely. Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was David's best friend. Saul's son. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Micker, in the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Then the king David said, sent and brought him from the house of Micker and the son of Emil to Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith. He fell on his faith and paid homage and said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you the land of your Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard For a dead dog such as I. Today, you and I have been given this incredible, been given this incredible opportunity. See, some of us may not hear when we we, we talk about the Syrophoenician woman feel the weight of that, that disconnect or feel the weight of that, what it was like to be ostracized like that because we've always kind of grown up in the church. We've always kind of grown up Christian, which isn't actually possible. You actually have to place your faith in Christ and him convert you to be Christian. But 
Sometimes there's this disconnect, but the woman acknowledged the fact that, yeah, the world says that I'm a dog, but I still want what you have, Jesus. And Jesus shows his kindness and his grace to the most unlikely people. I want you to see today that every single one of us were crippled in our spirit. Every single one of us were broken beyond compare. Every single one of us in this room, the Bible says, have fallen short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. The Bible says that none is righteous. No, not even one. There are no exceptions. But I, I want you to see this in the scriptures today. As, as much as Christ invades our lives and he calls us to live differently and love differently, what we have to realize this morning, what I want you to see is that the king delights in you. Not because of what you have to offer or what you don't think you have to offer. Not because how good you've been or how bad you've been. The king delights in you today because of who your father is. Can you imagine Mephibosheth? He's in Lodabar. This was the backside of some desert, some obscure spot out in the middle of a desert. The king calls him to himself and says, your life is going to be radically different. You're going to have a seat at my table. I'm going to slide you up under the table. I'm going to cover your imperfection. I'm going to cover your brokenness. I'm going to cover your sin. A dog like me? You can hear it in Mephibosheth's voice. You, a dog like me? A seat at my table. This morning you may have a walk through that season in your life. Say, TJ... Not one like me. Now, I hear what you're saying that Christ is, you know, he, he takes the throne of our heart and he, he wants to use us to change the world. But TJ, I mean, I hear what you're saying about going into other regions and going into uncomfortable places and sharing the gospel and living out the gospel. But TJ, not someone like me. TJ, I hear what you're saying that, that Christ wants to redeem us and love us and set us free and change the trajectory of our lives. But TJ, not Someone like me. And the response from Scripture this morning is come to the table. There's a seat for you. Christ gave his all on the cross so you could have his all in this life and live from that overflow. There's a seat at the table this morning. A seat at the table. My question to you this morning is will you take your seat? Or will you be content to live in Lodabar? Will you be content to stay on the backside of the desert when the king has offered you a seat at his table? Will you take your seat at the table? Let's pray. Father, We've been carried to the table. The song says it, that we've been seated where we don't belong. Lord, the Bible says it's not by righteous things that we've done, but it was the gift of God that gave us eternal life. So, Lord, I love how in the text, in the scripture, Mephibosheth throws the reality of his life on the table with you and says, listen, I'm... A dog such as I, this 
this nobody on the backside of the desert, you really want me? And the response stands, there's a seat at the table. And today, God, we oftentimes in our lives, we follow suit with all, many of the fathers of the faith, the faith and the great names in the Bible like Moses who threw all of his excuses at you before you used him. And Mephibosheth who throws these excuses out, why he shouldn't be at the table. And the whole time, Lord, you're pointing to the cross, showing us why we get a seat at the table. You made a seat for us by the blood of the cross, so help us to draw near today. Help us to draw near today, Jesus. We're desperate for you. We love you in Jesus' name.